best entry we've ever had here, I think. That's great. It all goes well for the evening. Well, first of all, let me introduce myself. My name is Professor Michael Cox, uh, professor here in the International Relations Department since early 2003. Barry and I were appointed in and around uh, the same time. I'm very honored to chair this uh, public lecture this evening for two reasons. Firstly, uh, let me say straight away, because of the speaker, uh, Professor Barry Buzan, a very good friend and a great colleague since I arrived here uh, six years ago uh, from Aberystwyth. Aberystwyth, by the way, in international relations, is the other place, uh, the one that should never be mentioned, but I have. So. But anyway, Barry, you have been a good friend and a great colleague since I've been here over those six years. And the second reason I'm very greatly honoured to, to uh, chair this meeting this evening because the, because the nature of the chair, uh, which Barry has uh, recently been awarded, the, the Montague Burton Chair. Uh, let me say something first about the chair uh, and then about Barry uh, himself. Uh, international relations as a subject or discipline has been taught at the LSE since uh, 1924, many years. Uh, it was originally funded uh, by the Sir Ernest Castle Fund as an endowment. Uh, this endowment came to an end 10 years later in June uh, 1934 and the Montague Burton, or Montague Burton himself, or Montague Morris Burton, or Sir Montague Morris Burton, then offered some money, 500 pounds, to keep the chair going. Let me just say something about uh, Morris, uh, Montague Burton himself, a rather, remarkable, a rather remarkable man. He was born in Lithuania, Jewish background, Moshe Osinski was his original name. He was born in Kovna province, and he came alone to England in 1900. In 1901, he was staying in Cheetham, Manchester. He started life as a peddler, then set up a general outfitter in Chesterfield. In 1903, reselling ready-made suits from a wholesaler. By 1931, he was being knighted by the British establishment for services not to international relations, interestingly, but to industrial relations. A rather remarkable biography of a very remarkable man who has made uh, this chair uh, possible, and I think extremely important for us here at the LSE tonight uh, to, to pay due homage to him. Of course, £500 was not a king's ransom, perhaps, but enough to launch what soon became one of the most prestigious positions in international relations in the world. The first holder of the chair was Charles Manning, who held it between 1936 as the Montague Burton chair and 1962, followed by Professor Geoffrey Goodwin, who held it between 1962 and 1978, the third holder of the chair, I also add the first and last woman to hold the chair was uh, the never forgettable uh, Susan Strange, who held it between 1978 and 1988. And this was followed over the next 20 years by John Vincent, who died so tragically young, uh, Christopher Hill, who held the chair until 2004 before he moved to Cambridge, and uh, Fred Halliday, who held the chair then from 2004 to 2008 before he moved on to Barcelona. So Barry, I think, you are King Barry VII. So Barry is the seventh Montague Burton chair at the, at the LSE. I hope I've got my numbers right there, Barry. Let me just say something then about Barry himself. Barry, of course, as I've discovered over the years I've known him here, is a man of many parts and identities. He's a gourmet with his partner, Deborah Skinner, who's here this evening, a mind mapper uh, with his brother, Tony Buzan, and as I discovered some years ago, a devotee of the motorbike. 
Buzan was obviously born to be wild. <laughs> and even if he was not born to IR, over the next years he became one of its best-known scholars with over 20 books and 100 articles and chapters to his name. A, a remarkable uh, career. Uh, naturally, for someone who later became or later came to be so strongly identified with the so-called English school of IR, Barry was not born in England. It's almost the definition of the English school not to be born in England. Uh, but in the British Commonwealth, Canada to be precise, where he took his first degree in British Columbia, I think I'm right here to say Barry, in 1968. In 1973, Barry took his doctorate at the LSE, but then spent the next 30 years away from the school before he returned. And during that period, the young Buzan, if I might call you that, Barry, was very busy, uh, lecturing at Warwick and the University of Westminster, being project uh, director of the Copenhagen Peace Research Institute, writing books galore, deeply embarrassing colleague to have, by the way, Barry. And most importantly, perhaps, if I can mention one of those, uh, those contributions to, to the IR field, most importantly, I think, without doubt, People's States and Fears, published in 18, 1983, a, a genuine classic. Uh, recently, I'm very proud to say this, very recently republished, reissued uh, by the European Consortium of Political Research. And in the process, of course, Barry was also collecting heaps of honours. He was elected Fellow of the British Academy in 1998 and in 2001 was elected to the Association of Learned Societies in the, in the Social Sciences. Uh, Barry is known as a theorist, but with strong interest in security and, and in public policy. And it was from this that arose his interest in Asia and China over the past few years. Barry is much known in China, I think it would be fair to say. He's an honorary professor at the Jilin University and has indeed been translated into Chinese many of his works. We might say, because of Barry Buzan, the English school is alive and well in China. So it gives me great honor uh, to introduce what I think is an entirely suitable uh, lecture for this evening, which combines both Barry's theoretical interest and his in growing interest in China China in international society is peaceful rise possible. Barry, wonderful to welcome you here this evening yet again. Congratulations on being awarded the Montague Burton Chair. We look forward to what you have to say this evening. Thank you, Mick, for those kind words. I'll, I'll have to change my birth certificate, uh, but, uh, which currently says Hammersmith Hospital. But never mind. The rest of the colonial no, uh, story is, is true. Um, you suggested we should pay uh, homage to Montague Burton, and uh, the homage that I'm paying at the moment is the fact that I'm standing here in a suit. In a suit, yeah. <laughs> um, the window to watch. I think Most of you who know me will know that I am very, very seldom, if ever, seen in a suit. Um, but something else you might not know about Montague Burton is that the phrase, the full Monty, um, is associated with him. It now has a somewhat different meaning. <laughs> uh, but the full Monty, in its original articulation, meant that when you went to the Burton tailoring shop, you bought not just the suit, but the waistcoat and the tie and the cufflinks and the shirt, and that was the full Monty. I am not doing the full Monty in either sense because I am not wearing a tie. <laughs> so, thank you for the kind introduction, Mick, and thank you to my colleagues in the IR department for uh, conferring this chair upon me, which is, uh, which is a great honor. And indeed, thank you to the department and to Ideas uh, for 
hosting this occasion and for organizing it. What I want to talk about is China's peaceful rise policy and whether it's possible. I'm going to talk about this in um, what is broadly, as Mick suggested, an English school framing, so I'm going to use the term international society quite a lot. Um, I'm not going to get technical about this uh, by international society. I just mean, um, as Richard Little once explained uh, to my wife better than I could do, that states like people live in a society which has its rules uh, and its institutions and its uh, conventions. So when I use that phrase, I'm going to be talking about, about that. The inspiration for this came from two visits I uh, made to China late last year because there were various conferences um, in Beijing that were um, celebrating and thinking about uh, the 30-year uh, the anniversary um, of China's policy of uh, reform and opening up, um, as it's called. These were mostly celebratory, uh, but I was asked uh, to think ahead as well about not just where China had come from, but where it had been. Uh, and I, uh, therefore, started thinking about that in order to, uh, to talk at those conferences. And this paper comes out of that exercise, both the thoughts that I took with me when I went there um, and the thoughts that I've had since and gained uh, from the uh, discussions that I was having there. The basic argument I'm going to make is that peaceful rise um, is possible, uh, but it's going to be difficult, uh, and that the way it's been done over the last 30 years, which I'm going to argue has been quite successful, will not do, it will not work. More of the same will not work uh, for the next 30 years. Now, just to make one other link here uh, to the uh, previous holder of the Montague Burton chair, uh, Fred Halliday. Fred has conveniently provided uh, a useful quote, which I can use as a benchmark for my talk. This is from his 1999 book, Revolution in World Politics. He says pretty categorically, Fred being Fred, there is no such thing in any country or in international relations as a peaceful road to modernity. So the Halliday answer to this question would necessarily have to be no, that peaceful rise is not possible. As I say, I'm going to going to dispute that statement, but with quite a lot of reservations. Fred could end up being right, um, but I don't think he is inevitably right in this. So this is uncharacteristically for me, uh, in a sense, a public policy talk. This is a, uh, a line of thinking aimed principally at uh, a Chinese policy audience. What I'm going to do here is start by having a brief look back uh, at China and international society, sort of where we've come from. Uh, I'm then going to argue that where we are now constitutes a kind of turning point, um, which is the foundation for my argument that what's been done over the last 30 years will not do if peaceful rise is to be successful over the next 30 years. And then in the last section, I'm going to look ahead and I'm going to focus particularly on three relationships. Uh, China's relationship with the US, which is fairly straightforward, although problematic. Um, its relationship with Japan, which will be perhaps the most controversial uh, thing that I have to say. Uh, and its relationship with international society more broadly, which will be the most complicated thing I have to say. So if we look back, um, 
where has China come from? It's pretty easy to uh, drop this into four periods, and I'm not going to say a lot about, uh, about most of these, just to, uh, to, to note them. So up until the middle of the 19th century, before the European and Western intrusion into uh, East Asia really got going in a, uh, in a big way, uh, China was the center of its own international society uh, with its own rules and its own distinctive way of doing things. This is an interesting subject in its own right, and people are just beginning to study it. But all we need to know about this for the time being, for the purpose of this lecture, is that this was all blown away, more or less completely destroyed relatively quickly by the overwhelming power um, of the Western intrusion. What then followed from the middle of the 19th century to the middle of the 20th century um, is the, uh, a period uh, which uh, the Chinese think of as the century of humiliation, and that century of humiliation still weighs heavily in their thinking about their place uh, in the world. But this was a period during which China struggled to come to terms with and to find acceptance in uh, what was still a very Eurocentric international society. China was not alone in doing this. Um, Japan uh, and uh, the Ottoman Empire and other uh, countries that had not been colonized were also uh, struggling to come to terms with Western society. Uh, and this was a very galling experience. Uh, Western society defined itself in terms of what was then known as the standard of civilization and what is now known as human rights, um, i.e. things that you have to do in order to be considered civilized and to be allowed entry into uh, the club of civilized nations. There's a lot of argument about when China made it into this club, uh, but certainly by the Second World War, uh, there's no uh, contestation of this, that China had been accepted as a full member of international society. Uh, and indeed, uh, when the uh, United Nations was founded, China got a seat um, on uh, the Security Council, one of the five permanent seats. The third period um, is the revolutionary one, China uh, under Mao. Um, there's not too much study of this, but this was a sharp turn away from the previous trajectory. This was a period in which China, by and large, rejected Western international society, sided with the Soviet Union in what might be thought of as a war for the future uh, of international society. And even when China split wisely from the Soviet Union before the Soviet uh, experiment uh, fell to pieces, uh, China still uh, retained its opposition uh, to Western international society. And this went on um, up until the late 1970s. Then there's another big turnaround. Um, this is a turnaround that is driven largely domestically in China. Um, it's a reaction against the failures and uh, uh, catastrophes and uh, tremendous threats that China faced during its revolutionary period. Uh, and the, the basic turn um, occurred in the late 70s, uh, early 80s, and it took the form of giving uh, priority to the development of the Chinese economy by looking outward, the, the so-called reform and opening up. So uh, China's uh, impetus for uh, reform was very much driven by internal changes, the need for development um, and the need for the Chinese Communist Party to legitimate, legitimate itself um, through more successful development. This uh, 
basic turn provides the foundation for the whole of peaceful rise. And I would argue that peaceful rise has been going on for the last 30 years and has been, uh, in many ways, very successful. But it did create um, a very intense need on the part of the Chinese government to cultivate stability, both in its regional and in the global environments. And in this sense, um, China had the same kind of needs as, as Japan, uh, that it wished to concentrate very much on its own, uh, its own development. And in doing that, it needed to link outward to the rest of the world for uh, trade and, and, to some extent, uh, investment and to get technology inputs, etc. So this was an enormous, I mean, a really enormous change. Hard to imagine a bigger domestic uh, change. And the peaceful rise policy, therefore, is rooted in this domestic change because if there's turbulence, then this whole economic strategy and the priority to the economy will fail. And as the rise over the last 30 years has proceeded, of course, the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party has become more and more rooted in the success of its economic project. So its legitimacy hangs increasingly on its ability to deliver prosperity to hundreds of millions of people, something that has been quite successfully done so far, um, but which is now uh, beginning to move into question. In terms of, uh, of, of how it's been received and how it's played the game of international relations, uh, China has done quite well on the regional level. It has steadily integrated itself in with the regional institutions um, like uh, ASEAN and ASEAN plus three and various other um, arrangements in East Asia and is increasingly seen after some initial worries as a good citizen. This is a phrase that you find quite frequently used uh, about China uh, in its own region. So it has come to terms with its neighbors. It has by and large persuaded them that it's not threatening. Um, it has behaved reasonably well um, in, uh, say, the 97 economic crisis in East Asia where it, it gained a lot, of, uh, a lot of credit. So it has succeeded in rising peacefully uh, within its region, being seen <coughs> at least as much as an economic opportunity as an economic threat. So on the regional level, China has done quite well, and of course it shares a number of values with uh, many of its East Asian neighbors. Uh, a concern with regime security, a concern with um, economic development and, and the, the mutual pursuit um, of prosperity and of keeping uh, political military relations relatively stable. On the global level, uh, China has done a bit less well. It's had a very prickly relationship with the, uh, with the US. Um, is not so much considered a good citizen as it is uh, within its region. Um, there's more concern uh, globally and in the West in particular uh, about uh, China's human rights record uh, and various other uh, foreign policy difficulties. What you have to contrast this record with, though, is the record of other rising powers. Um, in recent history. And by this standard, um, China has done extraordinarily well. Um, if you look at the record of other rising powers in the 20th century uh, in <coughs> particular, uh, Germany, uh, Japan, Russia, these are powers that have not risen peacefully. They have risen by putting a lot of emphasis on rapid accumulation of military strength, 
and then conquering their regions as a base in order to improve their power position in the world, and then going on to try to bid for leading positions at the global level. China has done none of these things. Indeed, if you were to look for a comparator for China, I don't want to push this too far, so it's as much a provocation as a point, but if you want to look for something to compare China with in terms of peaceful rise, perhaps the best comparison is the United States for two obvious reasons. When the United States was in its rising period in the 19th centuries, it did more or less what China is doing now. It didn't spend much on its military and tried to stay low profile and relatively disengaged from military and political issues, the famous policy of isolationism, but it was very engaged economically and trying to develop as fast as it could. So in some senses, therefore, China looks a little bit like it's pursuing the same kind of model as the United States pursued in its period of rise, and very much in contrast to some of the more turbulent risings that we have seen. This in itself suggests that there are question marks then around Fred Halliday's proposition. It is possible for powers to rise peacefully. Only if you are a dyed-in-the-wool realist and cannot escape from the logic of power politics are you committed to the view that a rising power must inevitably be so threatening and so disturbing to those in the status quo that it will necessarily trigger conflict or possibly war. So for the first period then, looking back, I think what we can see is that there's been quite a remarkable history with some very dramatic changes. The latest period, the last 30-year period, has been one in which the peaceful rise process has been going on and on the whole has been pretty successful, both within China and in the world. In other words, the Chinese leadership, whether you like them or not, and I'm sure many of you have mixed feelings about them at the very best, but they have played a difficult hand quite well. It could easily have been very much worse than this. Now, that brings me to where we are now. And here I want to just make four points about why I think that China cannot proceed along the same lines as it's been going on for the last 30 years if it wants to continue on the road of peaceful rise. The first one of these simply relates to China itself, that China has been rising for 30 years. When it started this rise, China was a relatively small player in the world. Small economy, not very powerful militarily, not much influence outside its sphere. Having abandoned its ideological position, it was a relatively minor player, and that makes a peaceful rise easier. 30 years on, you only have to look at the literature, current literature about China, to see that China is talked about as a real great power and as a potential superpower not very far down the line. And I know that people like Gerald Siegel have argued that China has been trading on its future prospects for a long time, but that seems now much more real 
uh, as a real possibility than it perhaps did 10 or 20 years ago, um, that China has already acquired a lot of power. And if I can uh, steal a line from pop culture, as one is required to do these days, um, with great power goes great responsibility. The authority of Spider-Man, no less. Um, and this, I think, is um, a, an obvious but somewhat neglected point, and one which uh, the Chinese leadership itself have not properly got hold of yet, uh, because they're still trying, trying to pretend that they're a relatively small power that wants to be a big power, but they don't want to take on the responsibility that goes with the level of power that they've already got. So the success up to this point of China's rise is, it seems to me, one of the factors that means that they cannot go on uh, uh, down this particular route, because the impact of what they do now is very large on everybody else. Uh, so they can't just uh, pretend that they're a big Switzerland. <laughs> the second point, um, which I think is a, is a more uh, contemporary one, is the fact of the economic crisis, which is now um, all around us. I don't want to go into this in any detail, but it's pretty clear that the economic crisis that we are now in is rather big and is likely to go on for some time. Um, that there has been, in a sense, a quite substantial crash, not just of a, of a set of arrangements, but also of a set of ideas that underpinned those arrangements, and that whatever comes out of this is going to look quite substantially different from uh, the way things have operated over the last 30 years. In this sense, it might be argued that the first 30 years of China's rise um, were attended by good fortune. Um, in other words, the international system and the international political economy were in and of themselves quite stable. Um, they were uncharacteristically so, if you will, and therefore China's rise happened to coincide uh, with a period in which the international political economy was itself um, relatively stable and relatively prosperous. Notwithstanding the end of the Cold War and all of that, China's timing for the first 30 years of its peaceful rise was good. China adopted the same kind of strategy that Japan had used um, in, uh, in its uh, post-war uh, recovery, which was an export-led uh, strategy, and this has been remarkably successful in expanding the Chinese uh, economy and in enriching um, hundreds of millions of people. The problem is that it seems highly likely that as a consequence of the kind of economic collapse we are now in, this export-led strategy is not going to be viable anymore. Quite what will be viable is uh, much under discussion. It seems likely that, that uh, China, in order to sustain its internal prosperity, and it is politically essential for the Chinese leadership to maintain that prosperity, because otherwise they have no claim to be the legitimate rulers of the country, that they are going to have somehow to expand consumption in their domestic market as a way of, uh, of driving economic growth. There's going to have to be quite a big turnaround here. And this potentially has quite big implications for how China relates to, uh, to the rest of the world. If its own um, internal economic development be becomes more internally based and less, as it were, based in the international system, uh, then this might have political ramifications as well. It's 
hard to, to see where this goes because we don't quite know how the economic crisis is going to work out. It seems to me big enough that one can safely say that what worked for the last 30 years is not going to work for the next 30 years because those export markets uh, will not be there. The third uh, point of change uh, here, and again, this is something I'm just going to mention rather than go into, is that it seems pretty likely that we are moving into a, a quite substantial environmental crisis of some sort. Um, the, the discourse on this has changed rather dramatically over the last two or three years. The, the problem about this is that uh, I, I tend to think of it as a kind of wild card in international relations. It's like a joker. Um, it can change the nature of the game rather quickly depending on when the joker pops up out of the, uh, out of the pack but you never quite know when that's going to happen or, uh, or uh, in whose hand the joker is going to go. So there are various things that could happen here that could quite seriously disturb, uh, as it were, the normal business of international relations. Um, you only have to imagine the consequences of a sea level rise of even a few meters. Um, where we're sitting now, for example, would probably be getting rather damp um, if, this, uh, if this were to occur, and most coastal cities would be in trouble. Um, for those of you who've been to Shanghai, um, much of the new uh, development in Shanghai and Pudong is built on river delta, which is not very high above sea level. <coughs> China is, is already has uh, environmental problems of its own, but if you um, imagine that uh, water shortages get worse um, or that the climate changes in uh, in a variety of ways. There are all kinds of factors here that could substantially change the nature of international relations. And what we don't know about this is how that would be responded to. Uh, would it increase the amount of conflict in the system? Quite possible. Um, would it increase the demand for global governance and therefore more cooperation to deal with these things? Also quite possible. Exactly how this comes about and what shape it takes um, is not possible to predict. But one has to factor it in if one is thinking of a, of a sort of 30 years past and 30 years ahead. It seems to me that um, by the time uh, we're 30 years ahead, we're not going to be living in the same kind of environmentally uh, constructed world as the one we live in now. And th this, therefore, is something to consider. The last point is a more uh, political one. And it's one I'm going to um, to develop my, uh, my thoughts from, which is the question about American leadership. Now, there are two aspects to this. One is the question about American leadership, and the other is the question about how China responds to the United States. The question about American leadership is, um, are we going still to be in a unipolar system in which there is one uh, leading power, the United States, um, and that power has a kind of special position, a special responsibility, if you will, for uh, international society and for international order, if you will. It seems to me um, that given the extent of the present economic crisis, so we link uh, together here, the United States is now in a much weaker position than um, it has been, uh, not only because its own economy is in deep trouble, uh, but because the basic idea on which that economy was based, the Washington Consensus, so-called, is also in deep trouble. Uh, and it's not quite clear what the way back is. 
Now, the United States has just elected a, um, a very popular and charismatic president uh, who might be able to undo some of the very extensive political damage that has been done by uh, the previous administration to uh, the legitimacy of the United States um, as a global leader. But Obama is playing with a very difficult hand. He has much less in the way of resources to play with than uh, previous American presidents have. Uh, and he's got, uh, although there's a lot of goodwill surrounding him, um, the legacy left by the previous administration of disasters in the Middle East and elsewhere uh, will take a lot of repairing. It seems, therefore, not at all implausible to suggest, as many have been talking about for uh, quite some time since the end of the Cold War, uh, that the unipolar period was in some sense a moment, uh, relatively short, and that the natural multipolar, uh, many great power <coughs> order of international relations um, is, is resurfacing. Now the interesting thing, okay, so a bit hard to predict which way this is going, but it's certainly a variable that's, um, that's on the table. The interesting thing, however, is to look at the way in which the Chinese leadership uh, thinks about the United States um, in relation to its own peaceful rise. In some senses, uh, if you look at uh, the kind of rhetoric that comes out of the Chinese leadership, the United States is considered to be the problem. Um, the United States is thought of as being uh, on and off quite hostile to China, um, as being threatened by China's rise. Uh, it is uh, bound up in uh, the terminology that the Chinese favor um, of anti-hegemony, by anti-hegemony, they mean they don't like one power dominating the rest of the system. Uh, and there's a lot of talk in Chinese political rhetoric about the need for a more equitable, uh, more uh, multipolar international society. So in one sense, part of the Chinese leadership seems to be cheering for the possible decline of the influence and role of the United States in the international system. On the other hand, however, there is, as I mentioned before, uh, this very strong commitment to stability, uh, this drumbeat of concern about the need of China for stability, both regionally um, and globally, and particularly in the global economic order, if China's domestic internal economic development is going to continue. These two things seem to me to be pulling in opposite directions, and it's not quite clear to me how that contradiction um, is reconciled in, uh, in Chinese thinking. There is some tendency here for China to talk these two rhetorics and to talk a third rhetoric which suggests that China itself doesn't want to take over the leadership. Um, indeed, you find a lot in Chinese public policy rhetoric which goes along the lines that developing China is China's contribution to the world because China is an enormous place um, it has uh, uh, more than a fifth of the world's population. If that can be raised from relative poverty um, to relative affluence, then that will be China's contribution. China will become richer, and in becoming richer, it will make everybody else richer. And as it becomes richer, it will contribute more to, uh, to knowledge and science and all of the other uh, good things that go along with rising wealth. But China... Uh, takes this view, in one sense, again, I can make uh, perhaps slightly provocatively 
a comparison with the United States, that China sees its own activity as virtuous and cannot understand why anybody would be threatened by its rise, because its rise, so it is argued, will be of benefit not just to itself, but to the rest of the world. That is the kind of thinking that it is very easy to find in Washington, that anything that's good for the United States must be good for the world, because the United States is good and virtuous. That's an oversimplification, of course, but there's a certain parallel here. The problem is that China is, on the one hand, calling for, in some senses, a weakening of the U.S. position. It's not prepared to step in itself to take that over. It doesn't want to be seen as challenging the U.S. That's part of peaceful rise, too, but also depends on what is an American-built framework for economic order and also for political order in the world. So there are some tensions here in the Chinese position. So on that basis, it seems to me things can't go forward as they've been going for the last 30 years. Let me then turn to looking ahead a bit. And as I said, I want to look at three relationships here, the one with the U.S., the one with Japan, and the one with international society. I think the one with the U.S. is relatively simple and relatively familiar and in some ways straightforward. There are some difficulties in it that arise out of this problem of China being partly dependent on a U.S.-led order and partly opposed to American unipolarity and to hegemony. It's an interesting question to which I don't know the answer and to which the literature is full of disputes as to what extent China is dependent on the United States to keep the regional order in East Asia. There are two lines of thought on this. One is that the United States basically holds the ring in East Asia and that if the United States wasn't there, if you imagine the United States going home tomorrow for some reason, that China and Japan and other countries would fall upon themselves, the Chinese would invade Taiwan, North and South Korea would go to war, that the Americans are in a sense keeping the cork in the bottle of a region that would otherwise be quite conflictual. On the other hand, there's the view that actually most of the problems in the region are because the United States is there, that it has stopped the region from developing multilateral institutions as it might otherwise have done, and that the region would, by its own lights, probably evolve a fairly natural hierarchical order. There's a kind of Confucian logic here which comes a bit close to some of the late Sam Huntington's thinking about civilizations, but there's a kind of logic there which suggests that this region, especially as China is rising, because the argument goes when China has been strong, Asia has been peaceful as a whole. It's only when China is weak that Asia is turbulent. So we don't know whether the regional order in East Asia is dependent on the U.S. presence, and therefore that adds even more to this equation about how China and the U.S. relate to each other. But anyway, the conclusions here are relatively straightforward, I think, that if China wants to rise peacefully, it has to avoid 
having any kind of major confrontation with the United States. Um, that means certainly that there must be no military takeover on Taiwan because that would simply blow peaceful rise out of the water along with, uh, with much else. And I think this is all quite well understood um, and the Chinese play their relationship with the United States uh, very, very carefully indeed. Not, uh, not totally passively, of course, um, but they don't want to get into any kind of major head-to-head. -head. There is a question um, as to whether it's going to be possible for China to rise without attracting the antagonism of the United States. Um, if you're a realist, um, uh, there are many realists in the US and there are equally many in China. Um, if you're a realist and think in power politics terms, then the United States will simply have to be threatened by the rise of China because the rise of China, whether peaceful or not, will inevitably displace the United States as the sole superpower. So if you follow that kind of logic, there's absolutely no avoiding uh, uh, some kind of tension uh, between the United States and, uh, and China. If you follow a more liberal logic, of course, you can construct a different story um, and say, well, uh, uh, if China rises peacefully, the United States might not feel threatened by it, might see more opportunity than threat, uh, et cetera, et cetera. <coughs> but there is certainly a powerful lobby in Washington and has been for uh, a long time uh, that would rather like to see um, China taken as an opponent, partly because it would make American foreign policy a whole lot easier to make if they had a nice clear-cut <coughs> opponent like China rather than something messy like Al-Qaeda. Now, I think there's really not much that um, the Chinese can do other than what they've been doing already. So in this sense, um, a derogation from my argument that uh, more of the same won't do, but more of the same in relation to the United States is probably uh, just about right. And the key to peaceful rise, if it is that China cannot um, uh, uh, avoid the United States feeling threatened by it, in other words, if internal American dynamics mean that America is going to feel threatened by the rise of China, whether China is peaceful or not, then uh, in that case, the strategy for China would have to be to make sure that nobody else feels threatened. Uh, because it's entirely conceivable, in my view, that the United States might feel threatened by the rise of China, but if China was rising peacefully, nobody else might uh, feel threatened in that same way. Now, that points me to uh, the heart of my uh, first controversial point, which is China's relationship with Japan. This is a much neglected topic, although it's beginning at last to be talked about more in the literature. The first thing to say is that China's relationship with Japan is bad, and it's getting worse. Uh, there's a almost complete consensus in the literature on this, and the problem is that it's getting worse not at the level of elites and politicians, where it's fairly polite and fairly uh, uh, okay, but at the level of people, at the social level, um, that uh, in China there is a a strong streak of um, anti-Japanese thinking which is built into the way that Chinese nationalism has been constructed. And the Chinese Communist Party has some responsibility for this because um, the legitimacy of the Communist Party is partly rooted in its own um, uh, role in resistance to Japanese uh, occupation. And so it naturally makes uh, whatever play with that that it can. 
problem is that as you get these kinds of nationalist reactions in China, opinion in Japan is shifting from being indifferent to China to beginning to feel threatened by it. And these two things are starting to play into each other in a spiral which, if it's allowed to continue for much longer, could make good relations between the two of them very problematic indeed. Now, this seems to me, this relationship between Japan and China seems to me in some ways the most important one, even more important than China's relationship with the United States, to whether peaceful rise is going to succeed or fail. I don't think China can rise peacefully unless it can improve its relationship with Japan. And I think that China has to do most of the heavy lifting in this respect because I'm pretty clear that the Japanese are not going to do it. So there is a school of thought in China which says the Japanese are to blame and therefore they have to move first. And if that school wins out, then nothing is going to happen because I will bet on quite long odds that Japan is not going to move first here. The fact that relations between Japan and China are bad is a tremendous gift to the hawks in Washington. They love nothing more than the fact that China and Japan are not getting on because this underpins the entire American strategic position in the Western Pacific. I find, therefore, the logic of some Chinese nationalists about this incomprehensible in the sense that by banging on about history and about the wickedness of the Japanese, they are, in a sense, underpinning the Japanese-American alliance. They are cementing together, as it were, their near and far enemies. And this is about the stupidest thing strategically that it's possible to do. Japan and China actually share quite a lot of interests in terms of their interlinked economic development, their attitude towards the role of the state in the economy, and their desire for a stable region. So the fact that history is kind of taken as somehow chiseled in stone, that because there's this bad history, then relations have to be bad, this, it seems to me, is entirely wrong. History is what you make of it. There are plenty of examples in many places of history, in a sense, being reinterpreted to suit present needs. And it seems to me this is a matter for very urgent attention because if this relationship is not improved, then, as it were, the United States will have a strong hand in China's region and China will have a relatively weak hand in its region. And this matters regardless of how you think about the regional and global aspects of this. It seems to me that this has got to be an important part in the new thinking that China needs to do is to sort out whether they want to consolidate themselves first on the regional level, where in many respects the social and political environment is more congenial to China. In other words, China could find an international society in East Asia that was much less threatening to its domestic values than trying to come on even terms with the West on the global level, where there's going to be more of a clash over human rights and democracy and so on. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Hoffman. Thank you, Mr. Hoffman. The case is submitted.
and such like. So um, it seems to me that both China and Japan are quite big losers from this bad relationship that they have, but that China is much the bigger loser of the two um, because Japan and the relationship it has with China is crucial not only to what might happen or not happen on the regional level, um, but also to what happens or doesn't happen on the global level. So long as China is on side um, with the United States, the United States will, sorry, as long as Japan is on side with the United States, uh, then uh, the United States will have a strong position both globally um, and in East Asia. Um, if Japan's uh, linkage to the United States can be loosened, uh, this makes a difference both to what can happen in the region um, and also to uh, what can happen globally. So it seems to me strategically uh, tremendously important that this relationship be rethought and be uh, made a matter of some priority. Now, um, that brings me to uh, the third relationship I wanted to talk about, which is how China relates to international society. And here, if you'll forgive me, I'm just going to read something. I think I'm going to offer two visions of international society and then try to relate by way of winding up this talk um, how uh, China needs to think about this. There are two basic, rather starkly put views of what international society is. One of these might be called the globalization view. Um, this sees international society as fairly evenly, if thinly spread at the global level. The assumption is that the global level will tend to get stronger in relation to the regional one, thus the label globalization, and that international society will become more homogenized uh, uh, as a result of the operation of uh, global economic, cultural, and political forces, in other words, of the operation of capitalism, broadly put. So this view is one which sees international society mainly at the global level, um, sees it mainly in a Western framing, might take on board a few bits and pieces from other other cultures, but it's basically going to be uh, a triumph of a, uh, a liberal Western international society of some sort. The alternative view uh, might be called the post-colonial one. Um, this sees international society as an uneven core periphery structure in which the West still has a privileged but partly contested hegemonic role, and non-Western regions are in varying degrees subordinate to Western power and values. <coughs> Here, is the here the assumption is that as the Western vanguard declines, viz my earlier arguments about, uh, about the US, then uh, the non-Western powers will rise relative to that and the global level of international society will weaken. A general anti-hegemonic feeling, not just in China but elsewhere, uh, will add to this weakening and reinforce a relative strengthening of regional international societies as non-Western cultures seek to reassert their own values and resist at least some of those coming from the Western core. Now, it seems to me that uh, the Chinese government is not thinking enough about what kind of international society it wants to be part of. It is very difficult to find in the Chinese uh, political discourses a coherent view of this. If you uh, read carefully through um, the speeches of, uh, of Hu Jintao at, at various kinds of international meetings, you can infer a kind of uh, Chinese 
vision of a preferred international society, but it's a vision that doesn't seem very coherent. Um, on the one hand, this vision is largely talked about at the global level. The region, regional level is recognized, but not talked about, not much differentiated from it. And what you get is a rather novel combination that com it combines two things. It combines, on the one hand, um, a rather conservative, a politically and socially conservative view, which argues very much um, for cultural and uh, political differentiation. Right? So what you get, in a sense, is an old-fashioned pluralist kind of view where um, each country should have its own culture, its own political regime, its own political project. Um, this is underpinned with references to strong sovereignty, um, very much on the rights of uh, non-intervention and the rights of uh, peoples and cultures to govern themselves in the way that they, uh, that the way that they choose. This, however, is combined with half of the liberal project, the economic liberal half of this project, which uh, comes across in terms of the idea that development should be joint, there should be trade, there should be investment, there should be, in a sense, a world economy, um, and that this is a necessary uh, aspect for everybody to rise peacefully together and, and to get rich. Now, this is a strange combination. Um, this is a combination that has not been tried anywhere before. On the one hand, um, you will find endlessly repeated the phrase Chinese characteristics. It's everything with Chinese characteristics. It's worse than chips in Britain, where it's everything with chips. Everything in China comes with Chinese characteristics. And this is the basic rhetorical move which says we want the right to be different. We want to have our own culture. We want to have our own political system, etc., etc. Now, part of that, of course, um, simply reflects the struggle of the Chinese Communist Party to stay in power. So, they want the right to be different. They don't want to have to be democratic and liberal in a political and social sense. Bad enough, they've become liberal in an economic sense um, without having to go the whole hog. The question is whether this is sustainable or not, and perhaps it isn't. Uh, in the sense, from a liberal perspective, <coughs> you can't really have just economic liberalism and then uh, combined with that kind of cultural and political difference. This underpins, it seems to me, much of the concern about the rise of China. Um, the concern is that what happens if we allow a non-democratic power to rise? That the political part of the democratic peace uh, logic isn't going to work, and therefore there is legitimate concern about a rising China, both from a realist and from um, a liberal perspective. There's a certain amount of rhetoric comes out of Beijing about harmony, um, and this is more worrying than comforting in the sense that uh, it comes out of uh, mainly out of Confucian texts um, and in the way in which it's been used uh, currently politically. There's a lot of pretty specifically anti-democratic stuff attached to uh, the idea of harmony. It's a rather paternalistic rendering, and there's also. A, a worrying amount of sensitivity in China to any kind of uh, concern about the rise of China. It is very easy to find yourself suddenly accused of being anti-Chinese um, if you express concern that the rise of China might go bad, that some people might be threatened by this. There isn't a willingness um, so far to understand that uh, the rise of China might legitimately be seen 
as a matter of concern by other countries. Now, I can see that Mick is fidgeting over there because I'm running over time, so let me wind this up. It seems to me that some hard thinking is needed in China about how to manage peaceful rise over the next 30 years. The relationship with Japan is absolutely central to this, no matter what the Chinese decide to do. If they decide to focus their peaceful rise on the regional level and try to, as it were, rise in a regional international society that is more compatible with their domestic political values as currently held, then Japan is crucial. If the game is to try to rise on the global level to become part of a more homogenized, the globalized version of international society, then Japan is still crucial, partly because it's an ally of the United States, partly because it's one of the other great powers in the region. In other words, the rise of China cannot avoid doing something fairly big about the relationship with Japan. And I don't think this is beyond the capacity of the Chinese government. As the historical record that I unfolded briefly at the beginning of this talk suggests, the capacity of the Chinese government for making really big U-turns, really enormous changes, like the kind that they made in 1978, is certainly there. And compared to that, improving relations with Japan would be relatively simple. So it seems to me that peaceful rise is possible, but for the reasons I've given, it's going to be increasingly difficult. The first 30 years were relatively easy. The Chinese need to do some quite hard thinking about their relations with Japan, about what kind of international society they want to be part of, whether they want to play mainly on the global level or mainly on the regional one. More of the same will not do. If we get more of the same, then peaceful rise will fail, and Fred Halliday will have been proven correct. Thank you. I'll take it from there, if you like. Okay. I'll just let one or two people leave. Thank you. Okay. I think we've got plenty of food for thought there. Can I start with the first question? And I will take the first question, people with the microphone, from Professor Chen Jian of Cornell University, who's currently at the London School of Economics. Professor Chen Jian. Thank you very much, Professor Barry Bozan. This is a very important speech, and you have raised many important questions. I would like to be a little bit provocative for several reasons. First of all, the whole thing, what is the relationship between China and what you say, the kind of international society you would like to enter? And to what extent do you see China is entering the international society while at the same time trying to transform it? In other words, to what extent China's own long history as the center of its own society, international society, will play a role, and to what extent in the process of values and moral standards and history and culture will play a role? And that's the first thing. And second, about Chinese and Japanese relations, I somehow disagree with you. I think the Chinese-Japanese relations probably is much less important 
compared with a pair of other relations, for example, Chinese-Indian relations. At least between <coughs> China and Japan, there's only this Diaoyu Island, but, but between China and India, there are a very long border which has far from been settled. And also, interestingly, in your whole speech, I don't recall you have mentioned India. And India is regarded as another possible candidate for future leadership. And underlying this, of course, is a very big question. Despite of China's rise in terms of per capita income, it's still in the 130s neighborhood. So will that be taken into consideration in your call for China to play a global leadership role? Okay, so, thanks, Christian. Uh, Barry, why don't you just take that? Bat them back, yeah. Okay. Um, thanks, Chen Jian. Um, I wouldn't expect anything other than provocation from you. That's your hallmark. Um, it's He's an agent provocateur. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me deal with the first one, uh, the first one first. I think the, I mean, that's in a sense the question I want the answer to because one of the concerns about peaceful rise is that uh, I mean, the very construction of the phrase suggests that this is a transitional policy. Um, so the question then comes on, well, what, what happens after you've risen peacefully? Um, is this just a kind of sneaky ploy uh, whereby you try and get through the difficult bits, having learned the lessons of Germany um, and Japan and uh, the Soviet Union? You get through the sneaky bits, you, you kind of sneak past the West and become powerful without challenging them. But then once you're powerful enough, then you launch your challenge. Now, a good realist would have to think that way um, and would therefore be skeptical about this policy and very worried about, as it were, the nature of the China that was risen and what it would then do. So part of, to, to my mind, therefore, part of the uh, necessary part of the policy of peaceful rise over the next 30 years has, been, has got to be that China articulates some kind of vision of what sort of international society it wants to be part of. At the moment, the vision it's offering us is one, um, uh, it's an anti-democratic one where it wants to rise peacefully um, in a very pluralist, um, a very decentered, it seems to me the logic of it is a very decentered kind of international system in which everybody could go their own way and do their own thing, but somehow um, the liberal part, the economic liberal part would be kept in being even though all of the rest of the liberal agenda would be, would be rejected. I'm not sure that can be done, which is why I think the choice between the regional and the global level is a very important one for China. Um, if you're a good thoroughgoing liberal, you will of course say that China has been already infected with the virus of liberalism um, and point to the, uh, the historical examples of say Taiwan or South Korea or even Japan in, in its own way and say, you know, we've got the needle in, the virus is there, it's working in the system, it's only working economically at the moment, but over a generation or two that will transform society and politics into a more liberal mode as well. And therefore, we just have to wait and be careful, um, but that it will all turn out all right in the end. That would be a kind of thoroughgoing liberal view. Uh, the realist view is the one I suggested, that the concern that China is going to try to sneak by, and then when it is powerful, impose, uh, impose something on uh, the rest of the, of the world. What? We don't know. On the question of China-Japan, um, 
I haven't said anything. I mean, I could say something about China or India, but I'm not really planning to. I simply disagree. I don't think that's really going to be the very important relationship. China and India are well insulated from each other, it seems to me, and can quite easily stand back-to-back if they choose to do so, whereas China and Japan, Japan is part of China's home region, part of East Asia, and it's America's unsinkable aircraft carrier in that part of the world at this point. It seems to me that to the extent that China's relations with the U.S. is important, then the role of Japan is absolutely crucial to that. As long as the U.S.-Japan alliance remains in place, China is going to be to some extent contained. If the Chinese could be nice to Japan for long enough that the Japanese began to believe it, then it seems to me the option for very large strategic change is there in a way that it just isn't with India. Japan is much more crucial to China's home region and also to its relations with the U.S. because it's crucial to the U.S. position in the world. I don't see American superpowerdom as mainly based on material strength. I see it as mainly based on social strength, namely that Japan and Europe, the other two main centers of industrial power, more or less accept its leadership and subordinate their own security policies to it. If you could go down here, please. Mary Calder, please. Mary? Yeah, well, Fred Halliday always accuses me of being an internalist, so I'd like to ask you an internalist question, which is assuming, I mean, China's already losing from the global recession quite a lot, its market in the U.S. Supposing we expect further dramatic declines, the loss of income among the newly rich working classes who just moved into the towns, more protests over Tibet and the Uyghurs. Could you not imagine China, the Chinese Communist Party, looking for other methods of legitimacy, say, by fostering an aggressive nationalism? Is that not a possible scenario if the economic situation gets much worse and that might cause a rapid deterioration, particularly with India and China? That would, of course, mean a very dramatic end to peaceful rise. I mean, kaboom. So, I mean, it's not impossible. The Chinese government is in a difficult position for the reasons that you say. It's legitimacy, like the legitimacy of all those who take on board a liberal economy, its legitimacy depends on maintaining growth. And if it can't maintain growth, then it's going to be in some trouble domestically. It seems to me, however, that the Chinese government is very aware of the dangers of nationalism, and they are probably more afraid of hyper-nationalism than anybody else. They've read the history books. They know the lessons. And they don't want to get involved in a big shooting war in the region. I think, therefore, I mean, there's quite a lot of fairly profound belief in China about peaceful rise and about the legitimacy of it and about the commitment to it. There is in this kind of crazy way that a communist government has actually swallowed half of the liberal line and believes in the kind of interdependence peace project. And they've committed themselves to this in a very big way. So 
I think they would see that as a catastrophe if that happened, and that's not the way they want to go. That, to my mind, still, again, underpins the importance of the relationship with Japan and the cultivation of stability and good relations in the region, that the Chinese would look to the region as a fallback if the global economy fell to pieces, which would once again underline the need to improve relations with Japan. Is General Malden a blue shirt? Yeah, please. With the economic relationship between China and the United States now so central, basically with China's savings financing American consumption or overconsumption, surely it's up to the United States and indeed Europe to accept China's inevitable economic rise and to encourage, actively encourage, its increasing participation in international institutions. And for that to be successful and for that to happen, surely those institutions, which are now woefully 60 years out of date, have to be radically restructured and updated. I'm thinking of the IMF particularly, which China will have nothing to do with in terms of helping out with its surpluses until the IMF is obviously reconstructed to reflect the current balance of power. Yes, that would really depend on how the present crisis unfolds or how the response to the crisis unfolds. And it seems to me really a coin toss as to whether that's going to go more in the direction of improving global governance, as you would suggest, strengthening institutions to deal collectively with the problems, or more in the direction of regional bastions of saying basically we tried to run a global economy without a world government and it didn't work and we don't want to try that again because the bust-up has been too big. So for a time we'll play the economic game more on the regional level where it might be possible to bring the politics and the economics more into a manageable relationship than it is on the global level. So I'm not quite sure which way that's going to go. The thing that would concern me in that package is, as you rightly say, the Chinese have been buying shed loads of U.S. government treasuries and they are indeed the biggest holder. I think it's something like a trillion dollars, which a trillion dollars sounds like peanuts these days with what people are throwing around, but even so it's a vast amount of money. This, I think, in this sense the Chinese tried the same game as Japan, which was to fund America's debt in return for having access to America's markets so that they could export to it and at the same time buying a degree of political stabilization in their relationships because the economic interdependence would make the cost of conflict rather high. Now Japan did this as an ally and friend of the United States. China did this as what you wouldn't call China a friend of the United States. It's at best a rival and that's an unusual hand to have played. It worked fine for the last 30 years since they've been doing it. The problem now is if the U.S. government responds to what must be increasingly strong imperatives to inflate away the kind of debt that they're acquiring and the term quantitative easing is beginning to become more and more part of our daily parlance. If that happens, then it will pull that prop out from China-U.S. relations and indeed from China-Japan and perhaps even China-U.K. relations because we're quite heavily brought into U.S. government treasuries as well. 
And so that, I think, it would, would be my more immediate concern. There's a gentleman up there. Please, yeah. Right, good evening, Gary Hayes. Um, a couple of points. I hope to get an answer. I'm over here. Ah. Over there. I think Russia has got a major influence on the area, which you haven't mentioned. Um, they have got 30% more nuclear weapons than the US, and they've got massive resources. So that card, when it will be played, I'd like to know what you think, how it will be played by the international bankers. I'm one of those who's counting Russia out. I don't think the nuclear m weapons matter because they're not really usable. Um, the Russian population is dwindling away even faster than the Japanese, and at least the Japanese are good at building robots, which the Russians are, are not. Um, it's, it's a third world economy in many respects with a few bolt-ons left over from the Soviet Union, like a, a fairly credible arms industry. Um, I, I count them out. I think, I mean, the, the Russia's moment has, its historical moment has come and gone. After the Second World War, Russia could be strong because everybody around it was weak. Um, now everybody around it is strong and Russia is weak. And there's no way back from that in my lifetime, your lifetime, or the lifetime of anybody in this room. I, I, Bloody hell. I don't think I'm not so. a Russian. I'm not worried about <laughs> Not worried about it. Right, Russia's been ruled out. That's it. It's had, <laughs> it had its chance and it blew it. Right, I think that's a clear enough answer to the question. Where was the, yeah, the yeah, lady here in, in, in the middle, okay, please. Okay, I, I have another suggestion. Oh, dear. Um, not Russia. But uh, when do you think North Korea will break down? And I would like you to comment on China's relationship to North Korea. Okay. Um. You can answer the second <laughs> one, Barry. You're allowed off the first, I think. But anyway, whatever. I don't. I have absolutely no idea yeah. um, when North Korea will break down. It's one of those fascinating places where it wouldn't surprise you if you opened your newspaper tomorrow or your. Uh, website or whatever you get your news from tomorrow and saw that the North Korean regime had imploded, um, neither would it surprise you if it was still there 30 years from now, um, because we basically haven't faintest idea what's going on there. And if you're that poor, you've got nowhere down to go. I, I mean, at least the Russians have got some decline left in them. But <laughs> North, <laughs> North Korea... Leave Russia alone, will you? <laughs> North Korea is... Is as poor as it can get. So if the army can hang on to power, they can, they can hang on to power. Um, I, I would like to know more than I do because I think your second question is a very, it's a very interesting one. Uh, the traditional Chinese position has been that they wanted to maintain North Korea as a buffer, um, but China and South Korea have been getting on like a house on fire for at least the last 20 years and have a very good relationship, almost a better relationship than South Korea has with Japan. Um, and in that sense, um, especially if, uh, if the American factor can at least to some extent be taken out of the equation, uh, it may be that one could think that that sensitivity would be declining. Um, but the behavior of the North Korean regime is so erratic and its obsession with its own survival is so great that it's actually, I mean, it's very hard to, to call. And when the Chinese say that they don't have a lot of influence there, I think that's probably true. It, it's a bit like the Americans and, and Tel Aviv. I mean, you'd think they should have a lot of influence, but they don't. 
Um, and so I think the Chinese are kind of stuck there to some extent, as long as it's a fellow communist regime, bizarre though it may be, a kind of dynastic communism. Um, they feel a certain commitment to it. Uh, but you know, the Chinese have been perfectly willing to participate in the six-party talks around uh, North Korea and to multilateralize that. And, and that seems to me likely to be the way the thing will go in the future. We did have the uh, South Korean ambassador speaking here last week, and he, he made the very good point, by the way, Barry, that if, the, if North Korea were to break down, uh, they wouldn't be going south over the DMZ because by the time they'd walk 25 yards, they'd be dead because there's so many landmines there. Uh, but they could go northwards into China. And so, therefore, the mass migration, which would go out of North Korea, if there was a breakdown in North Korea, would actually go to China. So China's role in, in maintaining stability over some long period of time, that was the point he was, that he was, he was making. China's investment in this, therefore, is huge for the, for the future of that period. Yeah, the gentleman in white shirt up back. Yeah, th thanks for your presentation. Um, uh, I'd like you to comment maybe a little bit on more of the regional cooperation, um, particularly you, you mentioned ASEAN, uh, and of course China is part of the, the, the ASEAN plus three framework, but, but so is Japan uh, and Korea. And I, and I was wondering if you could comment a bit on the increased, or what I see is kind of the increased institutionalization of ASEAN, um, certainly uh, economically, but even uh, potentially more politically, and if um, China or Japan uh, may individually or collectively uh, seek maybe influence within that framework in terms of building a, a greater kind of uh, Asian uh, region, whether it was stability or growth? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, the oddity about ASEAN is that it's a regional outfit which has been quite influential, but it's led by the small countries in the region um, because neither China nor Japan have had sufficient legitimacy um, within the rest of East Asia to take leadership positions. So normally, if you look at kind of institution building, you'd expect um, uh, the big powers to play a leading role in the formation of their uh, of regional institutions, and that's not been the case. And that makes uh, the ASEAN arrangements uh, somewhat fragile. Um, there's also, I mean, there are lots of ASEAN arrangements. There's the uh, ASEAN Regional Forum as well, which um, it goes much wider and brings in, even the EU is part of the ASEAN Regional Forum, um, uh, along with the US and others. Uh, so uh, ASEAN has been the big institution builder uh, in the region, but it's not only building institutions in the region. It, it partly wants to um, play a role in uh, socializing China into being a good neighbor and has been quite successful with that. But it seems to me that until uh, once again, if I'm, I'm sorry if I'm becoming boring about this, but until the China-Japan relationship is sorted out, <laughs> right, um, ASEAN has to lead by default. And since it's the small and relatively weak countries in the region that are leading, there are limits to what they can do. Um, this is another uh, reason, it seems to me, that this uh, neglected relationship between the two big powers in the region has to be uh, looked at much more carefully than it has been. Yeah. If you could get the microphone over to the middle ASA, please. Great, and there's a gentleman here too. So get the mic down to this channel here. Yeah, the lady up there with the pink scarf, um, please. My yeah. name's Helen, and I'm a law graduate. Um, I'm quite interested in your perspective on. Um, speak up a bit, please. I'm quite interested in your perspective on improving relations between China and Japan. But nevertheless, history cannot be forgotten. And I think one of the struggles between the relationship is definitely World War II. Whilst the Germans can accept responsibility for what has happened, the situation between China and Japan is still very blurred, um, including. Um, Korea, 
And I think a few years ago, um, some biological chemicals were found in Tianjin, and the Chinese government just handed it back to the Japanese, and the situation was as such. They didn't cause a fuss. And I think economic development works because um, they can disregard everything else, the, the historical tensions and the social tensions. And thus far, I think it would progress in that direction unless there's something, an incentive to make the Chinese want to change um, their position. But otherwise, I think whilst China is growing, it's still going to take at least 50 years probably to grow to the economic um, political power that you're, you're probably suggesting. But I, 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 in that respect, I wanted to know what kind of incentive would you refer to that the Chinese would have, um, you know, that, that, that sort of um, view of actually wanting to improve relations, because right now it seems to be just fine, so to speak. Thank you. Okay, well, two, two thoughts on, on that. Um, I suppose one, the most obvious one, is uh, the relationship with the United States, um, that Japan is strategically crucial to that relationship. And if China thinks of itself as, in some sense, competing with the United States, then the strategic incentive, uh, the best way for China to uh, non-provocatively and peacefully undermine American power is to become friendlier with Japan. Um, that can't be faulted as a strategy. It can't be seen as provocative. Um, and yet it would make a very big political and material difference to American position and power um, in East Asia. And if, therefore, China is seeing itself in the long term as a rival with the US, as certainly some in China do and many in the US do, that, it seems to me, um, is far and away uh, the most sound strategy for pursuing that long-term goal. Um, it, the other incentive would be that if China wants to um, rise peacefully, uh, whether in its region or globally, it has to come to terms with its biggest neighbor. Otherwise, I mean, it's not a peaceful relationship at the moment. It's peaceful in the sense it's not particularly militarized, although there's a certain amount of uh, uh, of mutual military aggravation across disputed boundaries and such like, um, with uh, the Chinese uh, military testing Japanese uh, sea space and airspace, uh, but it's not terribly serious. Um, it, it just seems to me that the whole uh, the whole idea of peaceful rise isn't going to work. Right? So if this if peaceful rise is taken seriously, and I do take it seriously because I want it to work. Um, I think it would be a stupendous historical accomplishment um, for a country like China to rise peacefully. That would be one for the record books in, in a very big way, uh, and that sorting out the relationship with Japan is a necessary part of that. So the incentive is in that. If the goal of peaceful rise is taken seriously, then this has simply got to be sorted out. So, yeah. Okay, I think we're getting close to the end, so I'll just take one final question from the gentleman in the balcony there, please. Yes, uh, thank you. Um, actually, I have two points to make. Uh, uh, it, it can become a question as well. One is that uh, uh, I think that about the eternal crisis of uh, China, of China um, I think the notion of China, uh, the CCP's legitimacy is heavily depends on uh, depend on the economic growth. It's not. I think it's not so as heavy as we as we imagine because. 
Well, uh, as we see, uh, the financial crisis is, is, is happening now, and many uh, immigrant work, workers are losing their jobs. But I don't see there is a large number of social unrest or social protests is increasing. Uh, on the contrary, I, as I observe, uh, during the economic growth, uh, during the economic prosperity like uh, two, two or three years ago, actually the social unrest and the protest is much more strong, stronger than now. Because uh, I, I think, um, well, um, what, what, why this happened? Because I, 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 as, uh, as I observed, uh, because the land, the land reform uh, in China it, and the uh, the, the farmers can have, uh, have have their land in their home, so it can it can be considered as a social security uh, measure as well. If they so ma the majority of the uh, farmers they when they uh, go to work in cities, uh, for uh, it's, it, it is an extra income for them instead of uh, the the last the the, 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 the income for them to survive. Um, so if they lost lose job in, in the city, they can uh, well they can have they can farm jobs in their home. So that okay, okay so uh, well <laughs> well second, uh, it's not second point, please. okay yeah. Thanks. So um, point, uh, so the, uh, what about social the security uh, measurements uh, in 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 the in, in the role to ensure the uh, legitimacy of CCP? That's my first question, sorry. <laughs> right. My second point is that uh, the hatred towards the Japanese um, I've, uh, is so deeply rooted in Chinese culture. I can't say uh, the CCP should responsible responsible for this. One, one of the examples is that when the United States handed over Daoyu uh, Island to Japan in 1972, there was massive protection around the world in Chinese society, not necessarily, not necessarily under the regime of the CCP. And the other reason is that uh, there was no official compensation for, uh, for, the, uh, for the war, and there was no well, so-called revenge at the end of the war. It's, 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 it's totally different. So um, right. what, what do you think? Um, That's the question. Sorry, okay. Right. <laughs> what do you think? Okay. You got, thank you very much. Thank you. Good you. question. Thank Just one Thank you very much. Thank you. If we had another three or four hours, I might be able to answer that. Well, um, we'll give it but I'll, I'll just make, uh, I'll make a couple of points. Okay. I think, um, I mean, much of what you say may, may be true, but the, uh, the basic point is that if you pursue the liberal side of economics, in other words, if you let the market rip, um, as uh, the Chinese government has done, then what you do is to create very substantial amounts of social inequality and income inequality. And that's exactly what's happened in China um, over the last years. Now, this is all very well as long as all the boats are rising. And China, this is an argument that applies not just to China, but, but to any, um, it seems to me, any society that commits itself to this particular form of political economy. As long, but, but the political stability of capitalism, to put it in formulaic terms, the political stability of capitalism depends on the maintenance of economic growth because the nature of the economic growth produces inequality. Um, that inequality is only acceptable as long as all the boats are rising. If there is a prolonged downturn in which there is no economic growth, then politics turns to a matter of redivision and envy over inequalities. And this is a very nasty kind of politics in any country. Now, the Chinese government is well equipped with means of repression and can probably hang on for some good length of time, even if things were falling apart. But they don't. I think they don't want to go down that, uh, down that route, so that this is a kind of structural problem for them. It's nothing to do with 
China, but just to do with the nature of that political kind of, uh, of political economy. Um, on the hatred of Japan, um, it, I take a constructivist view on this. It seems to me that history is what you make of it. Um, and I agree that there's a good deal of stickiness in the history that has been made. Um, but it, it seems to me, and I think South Korea is no better in this respect, and indeed Japan is no better either um, in a somewhat different way, um, all of these governments are in their own way responsible for reproducing a particular version of history. They do it in their textbooks, they do it in education, they do it in their propaganda, they do it, they have been doing it for generations. Um, it's often contrasted with what happened in Europe between France and Germany where um, the depth of the issues was exactly the same, um, but it was dealt with in a different way. It's not something that can be done quickly. Um, that kind of damage goes deep, I, I agree with you, um, but it does seem to me something that can begin to be turned around and needs to be turned around, although it will take a tremendous act of political courage on the part of the Chinese government to do this, and I know some people have been hounded out of China even for suggesting that this uh, be done. Uh, the, the depth of feeling is very great. It can be bad for your health to say anything nice about, uh, about the Japanese. But it does seem to me that this is, it's not something that's, that's chiseled in stone. History is not like that. Um, history is malleable and reinterpretable. Um, and it, one of the things that perhaps needs to be done is for some kind of consensual history of the 20th century in East Asia to be composed. And I know there are some historians who, uh, who try to, to work on that. Uh, so there has to be some way of coming to terms with this. But at the moment, I think governments in several countries are responsible for reproducing the current interpretations of history which underlie their difficulties. And to, to that extent, they are responsible for the situation that exists. Okay, I think I'll, I'll draw things to a conclusion. We're, we're just at eight. Um, just three votes of thanks. Firstly, as I said earlier on, what I mean is genuinely a vote of thanks to Montague Burton. And not only does he provide Barry with a suit, although I'm not sure that is a Burton suit, <laughs> no, is it, Barry? Don't think but one would have to say that his 500 quid has gone a long way. Um, but Barry, you should ask for a pay rise. Um, uh, but anyway, I think it is important because of this enormous contribution with such small resources, nonetheless, this was a great man who endowed not only this chair but many, many others uh, around, around Britain. Um, secondly, a thank, vote of thanks to the audience for asking a relatively short question. Um, <laughs> We dealt with Japan maybe eight times. I wanted a little bit more on the United States, but nonetheless, thank you very much. And lastly, but not least, my old buddy, uh, Barry Bazan, voted thanks to you, Barry. You stand in a long tradition which now goes back 73 years. I hope that humbles you. I doubt it does. But now that I found you <laughs> born in Hammersmith and not in Canada, I shall get my geography right. You're still a member of the English school. You still were kind of bred and born in Canada in some sense. But anyway, thank you very much. Thank you to Barry. What do you vote in